0: So we just say now, you have your way during the service, you interrupt, you stop us when you want to stop us, whatever you, whatever you would have for us this morning, Lord, we're ready to receive it. We ask that you'd move in this region, Holy Spirit, draw many souls, hundreds of souls to the kingdom of Christ Jesus. We love you with all our hearts. Everybody say amen. 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 I sense his presence this morning. Well, I want to have a discussion this morning from Romans 1, um, and, I, and to be honest, I feel like I have 800 things I want to say, and trying to organize those thoughts in any kind of coherent fashion um, might not be so productive, so forgive me if I'm a little bit like a, a you know, people used to say it's like trying to, trying to drink out of a fire hydrant, there's just too much happening at one time. One of the benefits of this season... Um, from the coronavirus lockdown and the pandemic, I think one of the benefits is that we really began to examine and to ask the question, what is church? Um, Now, if you're at home watching online, don't hear any condemnation. I think we've got to use wisdom as it pertains to who's at risk and who's not at risk. So you've got to make decisions for you and your family based on wisdom. So don't hear a lick of condemnation. Um, I'm just pointing out that in this season, I think the Lord has allowed us to realize how much we really need each other. And um, we have good friends who work with a ministry who um, they've done a lot with addiction over the years, helping addicts get on their feet, get jobs. And um, he, uh, one of our friends was visiting, and he told us that during this season, they had such a relapse. They had so many addicts go back to drugs and alcohol, um, and largely because they had built their life around community and accountability and encouragement from other believers. And when you suck all of that away, we come to realize that God actually designed us to live within the church. Okay, and the the idea of church is the idea of a corporate gathering, corporate people. Now, there are a lot of, I I don't know how to how to articulate this well. So just let me talk. Okay, I got the microphone. You just sit there and listen. I, I'm worried that in in the West, and particularly in our culture, we have a very low view of church and an anti-biblical view of what church is. Um, there's a view of church right now in our culture that church is just kind of this hour pick-me-up when you find yourself low. Many think of church like a gym, right? You go to the gym to get fit, but, but many of us, we stop going when we don't feel like we need it anymore. There are a few hardcore folks who go all the time, but they're a little bit off the rocker, if you know what I'm saying. The rest of us, it's just when we need it. Statistically speaking, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a great convention and a great um, group of churches, and um, and I think this statistic probably represents churches like ours as well, but the Southern Baptist Convention um, followed their statistics, and what they found was that um, the majority of their churches... 35% of their members actually attended church. So most churches, Baptist, Southern Baptist churches, and I think this is across the board, they may have something like 700 people on their roles, people who would call themselves member of the church, but then they may have something like 250 people that actually participate in the life of the church. And what that says to us is that we have a very, very wrong understanding of what church is. Okay, And, and I've, I've thought about this a lot um, over the last week, trying to process this. And I think a lot of what's happened is, um, in evangelical culture, um, the word evangelical, it just comes from the gospel word euangelion, the, the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel. And so when we call ourselves evangelicals, what we mean is that we're people who believe in the gospel. Now, I, I reject the idea that evangelical is now a political term that I should be ashamed of, because the word at its root is a, is a word that means gospel. And when we say we're evangelical, what we mean is that we believe that Jesus alone is Messiah. It's only in his blood that any man has redemption. We come by faith and faith alone what we justification by faith not by works evangelical means we believe that the gospel is the only hope it's powerful and redemption's only in Jesus Okay, I understand that it's become a political term, but I reject the idea that our culture has the right to just change language as it pleases, okay? I think that's ridiculous. I think we need to teach our kids what words mean and what and to use them like they're meant to be used, okay? Um, but the evangelical culture, which we are a part, and I'm proud to say that I'm an evangelical, has greatly emphasized the idea of salvation, which we should greatly emphasize, okay? Salvation is the a beautiful, the most beautiful event in your life when you come to know Jesus and you gaze upon his face, and your dead heart is shaped with the breath of God, and you breathe again. Salvation is wonderful and beautiful, and when the Reformers went after salvation by faith alone, it became so embedded in our thinking and central in our thinking. And again, that's completely and totally appropriate. What is inappropriate is when we begin to think that salvation is all the Christian life is. And when we've begun to think that salvation is all the Christian life is, then we begin to think that the church is only about getting people saved. And once you are saved, you have nothing else to get. And so you may come when you want to come, but church is really just about getting people saved. And, and that is a very, very sloppy view of what church is. Okay, Um, And so if you think that you don't need to come to church because you've had an encounter with Jesus, you're saved, um, Paul would say the exact opposite. Paul would say that coming to church is about moving from being a babe in Christ into being a mature believer in Christ who reflects the image of Christ Jesus to their surrounding region. And now in doing evangelism, they do it consistently because they look like Jesus. But in the West, and particularly in the South, we've, we've made church this. It's just about evangelism. And so... So if you're saved, it's not really for you. You can come when you want to come. That's all good. Um, no big deal. Um, but that is a very low view of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology um, is the study of church, what the church is. Think of Paul in Hebrews, if Paul wrote Hebrews. I think likely he did. And chapter 10 saying this. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider, what do what we, he says, don't neglect meeting together, because we should be considering how to stir one another up in love and in good works. We should be encouraging one another all the more as Christ's return approaches. And so Paul, or the author of Hebrews here, lays out for us that, that church, the time we gather together, in some sense, is about us encouraging and stirring one another up to good works as we wait for the return of Jesus. In other words, church is about discipleship. Okay, there's an element of ecclesiology that's about discipleship. And when you get saved and give your life to Jesus, that is the start to your lifelong journey of discipleship growing in Christ-likeness. You don't get saved and stop. That's like, anyway, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole that we, you didn't come here to hear. Now, at the same time, that's happening. I have things to say about um The, the, do you, if, if you would stop to think the mega church culture is, is very new, right? Like a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have had a church. Um, a, a church of a couple hundred people would be called a mega church we, would, we in the room would be a mega church a couple hundred years ago and so megachurch culture is very new and, and i don 't for a moment think that every mega church in our society is a negative thing i don 't think, think it 's wrong or bad for a church to grow really big. I think there are some things that can happen if a mega church or, or that culture is not intentional and what can happen is a church can grow so big and subtly communicate that Sunday days are just about you coming and hearing a message, feeling better about yourself and sitting on the back row. So nobody can really see you. The lights are all down low and you just slide out of there and and, and you had a nice hour in your week. Um, And and again, I don't think that's the heart of any pastor, um, but that can happen if we're not intentional. Okay. So don't hear, don't hear um, condemnation there. And so on one hand we have that happening in our culture. And on the other hand, in churches that are more like us in our vein, um, with, with charismatic leanings, um, there's this teaching that's going, been, been going around for quite some time. And it's the idea that the ecclesia is primarily a governing body who, who is called to, um, establish God's government on the earth. And now there's a lot of a lot of truth behind that. There's certainly an element of the church that we're ambassadors for Christ, right? We we are going to carry the gospel to the four corners of the earth. All authority is given to Jesus. Go, therefore, carry the gospel. Um, all of those things are there's there's an element of those things in in church. But the word ecclesia, at its base, it just means gathering. It just means group. It just means a congregation. The word ekklesia can be used to describe a religious congregation. The word ecclesia in Greek can be used to describe a people, a group of people gathering to discuss building a new structure in their community. It can be used to describe a political group. It just means a group of people who gather together. And what's happened in our vein is we've overemphasized the idea that ecclesia is about a group of people gathering, get together to do politics, to do government, and it, and it flows into the idea of seven mountains and those things um, which aren 't again none of it 's necessarily bad, except for when you have the idea that all the church is for is to do the work of 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 um, Bringing healing and deliverance, and 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 what you do is you begin to view um, the church as not doing those things, and individuals begin to rise up and say the church is not functioning as the church because all the church is about is doing the work, and if they're not going to do the work, then I'll just do the work. And so, in the charismatic movement, we have a group of people who have interpreted the word ecclesia to be all about government and kingdom now, and they believe that because the church isn't doing the work, we'll just do the work, and they separate themselves from the local church in order to be the ones who really do the work, all the while they've thrown away the entire idea of gathering and what the church is. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, I feel like I rabbited that really quick. They've used the word ecclesia to create a posture that says if the church isn't going to do it, then I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it how I want to do it and when I want to do it, and I'm now the divine accuser of what the church does or doesn't do. I'm now the one who gets to say that the church has fallen short rather than embracing the idea of ecclesia, becoming a member of a body, and when you see something not being done in a church, raising your hand and say, hey, I would like to lead that in our church. And, and what you've done when you embrace that extreme idea of ecclesia is you removed yourself from the plain teaching of scripture concerning pastors and local elders and what it means to be a part of a family who submits ye one to another in love. There's covering and there's accountability. Now look, individual, um, I can do, I, I'm responsible for me. Nobody tells me what to do. That's American. That's not necessarily biblical, okay? That's an American ideology. No one tells me what to do. But the church is a family with government and structure and local elders and pastors and accountability one to another. And so there, because there are times when you may want to do something and feel like you're supposed to do something, but you need to have other brothers and sisters in the Lord who are mature in Jesus who can say to you, hey, that's a beautiful heart, but what you're doing is actually not biblical. Or I don't think that God's calling you to do that right now. Or what you're doing is dangerous. Some of you need to hear an elder and the Lord say to you, your doctrine's about as bad as Mormonism. Maybe you should sit down for a while, talk to brother Don about doctrine, and then maybe you can teach. But right now you're not ready to teach because you haven't been a part of a local church community where you've been discipled and become a mature believer. Now, why did I say all of that? I don't know." I think what I'm trying to say is, as we slide into Romans 1 today, we're, we're not gonna, we're not yet to the part of Romans 1 where Paul's really laying down firm doctrine. But we are in a part of Romans 1 where we're gonna see pieces of Paul's heart and what he believes about the church and what he believes the church is for. And so I wanna go down that thought pattern, if you will, and we wanna ask ourselves, what did this apostle who it's the brightest mind of his day. And is the, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. What does this apostle believe about what the church is? And we need to believe what the apostle believed about what the church is. We don't need to believe necessarily what our culture tells us church is. Okay? And we might need to reform a little. Does this make sense? We might need to wash our minds in the water of the word. Be renewed according to the scriptures. And think again about what we're doing and who we are. All right, let's read Romans chapter 1. We're going to read this morning, verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, and so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, I want to just carefully think through what Paul just said here, and and again, try to look at his heart and his understanding of what church is and what church isn't. First, God is my witness. I pray for you. That's not something the apostle says lightly. God is my witness. I'm accountable before God. I'm telling you the truth before the most holy, magnificent being of all creation, the omniscient God who sees all things standing before him. I tell you the truth. I pray for you. Prayer on, offered on behalf of another individual may be the most loving thing you can ever do in this life. Much more valuable than giving money or giving goods, although there are times where we need to do that. But really laboring in prayer for another individual, that is a great expression of love. And Paul may not have, and this Paul tells us in Philippians, there are seasons where I've abounded and there are seasons where I've learned to to thrive without having much. In other words, he's saying, sometimes I have money and sometimes I don't have money, but I do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so we don't know if Paul had money in this season or didn't have money in this season. But the most valuable thing that Paul had to offer was real, sincere, heartfelt prayer for these people. Now, now, Why would Paul pray for folks that he doesn't know? Again, he hasn't been to this church yet. He has a deep longing and desire to go to this church, meet these people, encourage these people, but he hasn't yet had the opportunity to go there. Why would he pray them? One, because there is sincere gospel love for those people. When God transforms your heart, when you've been born again by the Holy Ghost, when God moves on you, he plants within you a deep love for fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a natural thing that happens at salvation, and it is a longing to gather with God's people. And so Paul's never met them, but he has this deep desire, deep gospel love for them. And so he spends time praying for them. Why else would Paul pray for them? Because he's jealous to see them fulfill their call in Christ. He is zealous to see this community of believers mature in the faith, mature in their ability to proclaim gospel truth to their region. He is jealous for Christ's glory, therefore he is jealous to see them excel and succeed and prosper in their call. And so Paul does what he can do. He gets on his knees day in and day out and he prays for these People. Well, what kind of prayers did Paul pray for these people? That's an interesting question to ask because I don't know if you know this, but in first century Greco-Roman world, there was no social media. Okay, And so he didn't know whose mother was sick or who was going through what and who just died. Paul didn't have a lot of personal information about these people. He certainly knew a few individuals, but you would imagine that he, he didn't have particulars to know to pray all the time. And so what kind of prayers did he pray I think it's likely that he prayed the prayers that he prayed in Ephesians chapter 1. Prayers like this, that the church would be rooted and grounded in love. That they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That they would know the riches of Christ's love for them, the, the riches of their inheritance. I think he prayed prayers like this. Oh God, ground them in the truth of the gospel. Mature them in the faith. Pour your spirit out upon them. Cause their eyes to see and their hearts to understand all they have. In you. And so, in that sense, I think it's very likely that Paul was praying in a way that asked the Holy Spirit to spur on their maturity. Paul is praying for Christian maturity, that they would persevere, that they would thrive. Now can we say with sincerity that we live in fellowship with other believers and we do know and pray for their practical needs but that we're also systematically praying for the maturity of our brothers and sisters, praying for their discipleship process, praying that the eyes of their heart would gaze upon the beauty of Christ Jesus, that they would recognize all that they have in God, that they would be so full of the love of the Father and be washed by it. Can we in sincerity say that we care this posture that Paul carried. If not, we may not be doing church in the way that Paul understood church. Next, he says, I ask God that I may see you. I long to see you. Remember again that this is a place that Paul has never been. Remember again that Paul is an incredibly educated man, philosophically educated, He's educated in Greek culture and history. He's educated, obviously, in Jewish culture and history. You can imagine that kind of educated man would want to go to Rome to see the great sights, to witness the great city, to experience all of the culture and all of the literature and all of the poetry and art that she has to offer. But when Paul is really born again and comes to be moved upon by the Spirit, his greatest desire is not to witness Rome's culture and art and music. His greatest desire is to witness Rome's church. He longs to know the church at Rome. He's most concerned with the health and the vitality of the church at Rome. He seems totally uninterested in the majesty of Rome, in the culture of Rome, in the way in which you would assume a highly educated man would be. He, but he, he's totally absorbed with his longing to minister to the church in Rome. What's most important in Paul's life at this moment is that he would be able to preach the gospel to these people and see them mature in Christ and fulfill their call. He says, all the world has heard of your faithfulness. And this surely is true because obviously Rome is a city where there's great commerce. Obviously, Rome is a city where people are are traveling in and out and in and out. And so this small group of Christians that live in Rome, they are witnessed by the regions of the world as people pass through Rome. And Paul says, I've heard of your great faithfulness. But Paul says, "I have a sincere longing to spend time with you, lots of time with you." I think as our churches have been shut down, and again, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like originally they say we shut down for two weeks, and we're like, okay, they were all the world's going to die. And then hindsight, it's like, you know, we 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 probably could have thought through that a little bit better. Um, but through it all we've recognized that within us, if we really belong to Jesus, there is a deep longing for real communion, to be with one another. To share the Lord's table with one another. And watch further. Paul says, I long to impart some spiritual gift that we may be mutually encouraged. Now again, this is, this is, by any stretch of the imagination, Paul's most well-thought-out and well-written letter. This is, this is Paul at his finest, writing brilliant theology, systematically unfolding line upon line, crushing logic. This is Paul's best writing, yet he says in this writing, I long to be with you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that I cannot impart to you merely by letter. And that's a fascinating thought that Paul says, I long to be in your presence because in your presence we would be able to encourage one another and and there would be a spiritual fellowship where gifts and graces could be passed to one another in a way that cannot happen merely through writing. Is Paul talking about the gifts of the Spirit from 1 Corinthians, the gifts of the Spirit tongue, the gift of healing, the gift of faith? Is he talking about those kind of gifts? I don't think that's the first thing that he has in mind, although it could be. The word gift and the word grace are the same word in Greek. And when he says, um, he clarifies to say, that is so that you and I may both be encouraged. And so it could be that Paul's saying, I long to impart to you a spiritual gift listed from 1 Corinthians. Or it could be that Paul is saying, I long to encourage you as I express my spiritual gifts and you express your spiritual gifts and we both are mutually edified by our communion and relationship with one another. Both interpretations are are probable and either could be right and they both could be right to some extent. But there's an important point to notice that God gifts us as individuals with gifts and graces that other individuals within the body need and the only way to pass those is actual relationship. Paul says, there are things I carry that I long to be with you so that I can deposit those things to you. And then he says, and also there are things that you carry that as we have relationship, you could deposit towards me. And and what this is going to do, this mutual fellowship in which both people, both parties are depositing gifts and graces, he says the point of this mutual fellowship is that we both may be Edified. Again, Christian maturity. Paul views the church as, as bringing uh, believers to a place of Christian maturity, to perseverance, biblical holiness. You can't read these words and conclude that the church is merely a one-hour pick-me-up-on-a-Sunday where you hear a person speak who you may or may not know and you worship to great music and then you leave as if nothing happened. You can't read Paul's words and conclude that that's the way that he viewed church. Now, I'm not downplaying our Sunday morning gatherings. I think that Hebrews tells us that we need to keep having Sunday morning gatherings. And Acts tells us that the church gathered in large settings in order to hear the teaching of the apostles. But then they broke off to share fellowship and break bread in one another's homes. And so neither things are the full expression of what the church is and the church does. The church does gather to hear doctrine and to hear the word taught. And to to have um, a sense of discipleship that comes through uh, a sincere study of the scripture. But the church also gathers in small settings to share real fellowship and real communion and real intimacy and to, to apply those doctrines in practical living. Okay, you can hear me preach for until I'm blue in the face about, about sexual purity. But sometimes what it takes is having enough of a relationship with another believer to put their finger on your chest and say, hey, look, you are not living up to the standard of the teaching of the scriptures. And so in small group settings, in life on life settings, we're able to actually push and rub one another and encourage one another to live according to the word. And so I can give doctrine and theology and practical application from the pulpit, but in the house, when we actually do life together, we our iron sharpens iron. You've got to have people in your life that actually sharpen you. And if you think that being a part of a church is just about sliding in here once or twice a month and sliding out, you're not a part of a church until you really have fellowship with other believers who are rubbing on you, who are working off your edges, who are encouraging you to actually apply the teaching of Scripture. And again, I, I can't emphasize enough that, that what the word ecclesia means, church means, is a gathering of people, okay? And, and, and it means having relationship, having communion, sharing fellowship. So Paul says all of that, and then he says, I'm eager to preach to you. I'm obliged to preach to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. I'm eager to preach to you Greeks and barbarians. He's using a a Greek distinction of the world there. The way that Greeks would divide the world is you're either Greek or you're either a barbarian. In the same way, he'll move in Romans chapter two to you're either a Jew or you're either a Greek. That's the way Jews viewed the world. You're either a Jew or a Greek. Greeks, you're either a Greek or you're a barbarian. Most of you are pretty much barbarians as far as I can tell. You're just (laughs) ridiculous. Learn some table manners, people. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm totally joking. Um, You would know if you've ever eaten dinner at our house because it's basically a food fight. So Paul says, I pray for you, sincerely pray for you. I long to see you in person and I'm obligated to come to you and preach the gospel to you. And what's all of that about? And I think if we just ponder Paul's theology for a moment, ponder his life and his beliefs for a moment, we'll see that to Paul, the, the Christian life starts at salvation. And then the Christian life is lived out within the church. And the church helps the Christian to grow in discipleship and Christ-likeness and fulfill our individual calls as we are corporately bringing the kingdom to our community. And so it's not that Paul feels totally satisfied by the fact that there is a church planted in Rome. Paul's not saying, we got some folks planted in Rome so we can move on to the next city because there, there's some folks saved over there and we'll leave those saved folks over there and we just go to, let's go to the next city and get some folks saved. He's not satisfied because the church in Rome, although although they're saved, they are not yet fully matured in their faith. And so although he can't come to Rome yet, he's going to write his longest book to Rome, his most thorough theological work to Rome, because I can't get to you right now, but I'm going to send you my best effort in explaining to you the doctrines of Christianity, because I want you to be mature. If he wasn't concerned with their maturity, he wouldn't have spent so much time laboring over this book. But he's saying, I can't get to you, but let me send you my best, my best work in writing. But I'm not satisfied with the fact there are just believers there. I need you to be mature believers, filled with the Spirit believers, discipled believers, winning souls to the kingdom believers. I need you to be a church that functions in all that she's called to function in. And so I long to come to you to impart some gift... So what does that mean for us? In conclusion, Seth, somebody, come out here and help me, because it's been a day so far. (laughs) What does that mean for us? Well, what it means for us is that we want to make sure that we're actually doing what the Bible calls church. And again, this is a part of it. This is a part of worshiping. We need to gather together weekly to worship in spirit and in truth. I don't want to get to the place where we gather together weekly to sing some songs that no one really cares about. But we do need to gather together weekly and pour our hearts out with praise and adoration for who Jesus is. That's a part of the life of the church. We do need to gather together weekly to hear the preaching of the word together, to hear doctrine laid out, to hear the word laid out. But that's not all that church is. And so we need to consider what we are doing today and what we are not doing today we don't have the time to pass the microphone around and let everyone share about what's happening in their family this week so that we can pray for everyone's needs. But we do need to be sure that everyone's needs are being prayed for. So how do we do that? At what point do we do that? Well, the most logical thing to do is to do exactly what the early church did. And what the early church did was they gathered weekly in large settings to hear the word preached and to worship together. And and then they shared the Lord's table in homes. They broke bread in in homes. They broke into smaller groups to actually talk about life. What are you going through? To get advice from older believers, to hear wisdom from older believers, um, to, to make sure that the individuals in the body were actually being taken care of. And so as you leave church today, um, Our primary call is this, you'll, you'll walk out and Sue, like always has done her best to organize connect groups and to lay it out in a way that makes sense for you. But I want to encourage you today to take the word of God seriously, to take Paul's idea of church seriously, and to consider jumping into a connect group. There are connect groups that meet at all different times. And so your schedule isn't an excuse unless you work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if so, we need to have a good conversation about the Sabbath. Okay. Um, um, so I want to encourage you, man, get in a small group. Get in a small group. I say this all the time, and I need to keep saying it. I'm going to say it until I until I keel over here. Um, I'm an introvert. I like books, okay? I like books. I like to be at home with books. The problem is i got too many kids, but I like to sit at home with a book. I would rather be at home with a book by nature than be in a small group with people. Um, and it's easy if you're like me to say, I don't need... I don't need that small group, especially if it's a small group like that's just fellowship, right? Like I don't need to go and have coffee with those people. I can stay home and study my Bible and get get fruit from the scriptures alone. But what I want you to realize is that's an incredibly selfish outlook on what church is. Church is not just about what I can get or not get out of a connect group. Church is about the fact that there may be a new believer at that connect group who is going through the hardest season of their life, who needs a seasoned or more mature believer to pray with them and do life with them and encourage them. And I could sit at home and go, I don't need that. But in reality, it's not about what I need. It's who needs me. Okay, and and some of you, some of us, some of us, some of you have walked with the Lord for like the majority of your life. You know the Word in and out. Um, I want to encourage you. It's not just about what you can receive anymore. It's what you can give. And I want you to consider being a part of a group, not because you need something, but because you've got something to give. And there may be someone in that group who loses a spouse or loses a family member, who walks through great hardship. And you may be God's solution to bring comfort and joy. There may be a gift in you that could be deposited to that person in a great season of hardship, a grace, if you will, that will carry them through. But because we're so self-focused and self-centered, we, we don't participate in church. Does that make sense? So if you would stand to your feet, altar ministry, if you guys would get in place, we have a few words. I want to give you a few words that came forward as we prayed this morning. And and for the most part, our dismissal this morning, our application is going to be, man, go out there and get in a group and let's do life together. Let's do real discipleship. A few things that came forward this morning as we prayed, there was a word that someone, um, which is kind of rare, but that someone might have thrush or be struggling with thrush, Um, you know, the like throat issue. If that's you, if you're having some kind of infection or anything going on there, I want to encourage you to come and receive prayer this morning. There was a word this morning that, that some, you stumbled into the house this morning and the longer you sat here, the more you realized that you really needed to encounter God, that you really need a fresh encounter with God. As we pray. I want to encourage you to come and receive prayer and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would touch your life afresh. As always, if you've never given your life to Jesus, today's the day, man. You can know your sins are washed, that heaven awaits you. You can can be totally cleansed of what you did yesterday or the day before. Your sins can be made white as snow because Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a substitutionary death on your behalf. And so if you've never given your life to Jesus today, please, today is the day of salvation. Come talk to one of these altar ministers. We can pray with you before you leave this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord. Lord, we're asking that you would challenge us to be a better church. We're asking that you would make us a more mature body. We're asking that you would edify us. Lord, we know that there are hard days ahead. There's no doubt about that. And Lord, so we need to be a people of perseverance. Lord, we've seen as our culture has shooken with crazy ideologies that we need to be a church who trains our children well, that that we need to have biblical worldviews and scriptural understandings of life and what we're called to. And so, Lord, we're asking you now, in Jesus' name, make us a mature people. Edify us, Holy Spirit. Lord, as we meet in small groups, we pray you'd pour your spirit out on those groups. We pray that there be healing and discipleship and restoration. We pray that the, the, the snare of bitterness would be uprooted. We pray that we would learn to walk in holiness, that we'd be sanctified. Lord, use us, mold us as we do our best to, to be a church, a church that looks like what Paul understood to be a church. So if you would, church, just for a moment, just lift your hands. I just want to end worshiping just for a minute together. Seth, will you sing that for me just just a couple times, and we'll end. All the angels cry. Holy is the Lord God. All the earth. You can go ahead and make your way on the altar if you need prayer for any of those holy things today. Are you. All the angels cry. More than life. You're worthy of our best. You're beautiful. Lord, our prayers that you would shake this region for your glory. Use our children and our grandchildren. Ring us out, God, for your glory and your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray everybody say amen. Amen. Well make sure you check out the connect groups. Next step starts at 1030 this morning, and we just want you to know how much we love you and appreciate you.